Hi there! You're about to listen to a vintage episode of the Under the Microscope podcast. While the content is still as relevant and as interesting as when it was recorded, our webpage has changed. You can now find us at thesciencetalk.com slash real-scientist-nano. Welcome to Under the Microscope. This series is brought to you by the Real Scientists Nano team. Our goal is to provide a platform where scientists can communicate their work and interact with the public. With that in mind, every week we introduce you to a scientist working in the field of materials and nanoscience who would be curating the RealSci underscore nano Twitter account. Hi everyone, today we have with us Andrea Armani, who is a professor of chemical engineering and material science at the University of Southern California. Hi Andrea, how are you? Great, Uh, thank you very much for inviting me here today. We are very, very happy to have you and I'm very much excited to know more about you as a scientist, your career, your um, a lot of things. I'm going to ask you lots of <laughs> questions. Um, so let's start by understanding your career journey so far. So please tell us how you got to be the professor at mm-hmm. the University of Southern California. So my, uh, my career path uh, is a little meandering. Um, okay. So I, you know, we'll, we'll go all the way backwards. Um, So when I was in high school, uh, my high school wasn't like one of these stellar high schools with huge science programs. Uh, So I took biology, chemistry, and physics, and physics was the last class I took. Uh, Mm -hmm. So when I started looking around at colleges, I decided I wanted to be a physicist. And Mm -hmm. I applied to several schools, like every high school student does. And uh, I but I really focused on physics programs. So I went to University of Chicago and majored in physics. I discovered my first quarter there that I really was more of a, an engineer, but when I was in high school, I didn't know what engineering was. I didn't even know engineers existed. I didn't come from a science family. So now I was in a university that didn't have an engineering department, that didn't offer engineering degrees, and I was a first semester freshman. Um, so I was looking, you know, down a four-year path of <laughs> majoring in something I wasn't super excited about. Uh, but, you know, thinking long-term, you know, the most important thing about college is to get a degree and get out and start working. Mm-hmm. So I you know, kind of took a deep breath and decided to get my degree and then start thinking about how I could pivot and use that degree to get into engineering. Mm-hmm. So I got my degree in physics. And then when I was applying to grad schools, I started looking at applied physics programs, which is really engineering physics. Mm-hmm. And so I, I took that path. Um, I applied to both material science and applied physics programs and ended up going into applied physics. And by that point, I'd really discovered kind of my, my love of biology and really combining you know, engineering and biology. And so while I was getting my PhD, I also got a minor in biology. So I could really, you know, not just dabble in biology, but really have an academic understanding of biology as well. Mm -hmm. And then when I started applying for postdocs, I also uh, looked at chemical engineering as really kind of taking that that leap (laughs) into engineering. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so then I did a postdoc for two years in chemical engineering and biology, combining those two fields. 
So then when I started applying for faculty positions, this became a, a little bit of a, a quandary. Um, you know, where do I apply? Do I apply yeah. to physics departments? <laughs> do I apply to biology departments? Do I apply <laughs> to engineering departments? Um, where do I fit? Uh, yeah. And this is why I tell postdocs and grad students who are applying to uh, faculty positions, you know, don't don't limit yourself. Right? Look at your research. Look at where your research fits. Look at where your passion lies and apply to you know, all the departments where, you know, you kind of fit because your research will evolve as your passions evolve. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you don't necessarily need to limit yourself to where your passion was when you were 18 years old, you know, mm -hmm. or 17 years old, because your, your, your love will change, right? And your research will change. Right. Uh, so I started applying to positions and I ended up in a chemical engineering and material science department, which is obviously very different from where I started when <laughs> I was 18 in physics. Right. Uh, and so I, that's my main appointment now is in chemical engineering and material science. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have a couple a joint appointments in electrical engineering and biomedical engineering and chemistry. So my research group is, you know, all of those fields. It combines all of them. Um, and I have students from all those different departments in my group. That is yeah, so I, cool. It's <laughs> yes, very uh, non, non-conventional, not straight path. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. But wow, th this is so impressive. So it's, you know, chemistry, you know, physics, you know, biology, you know, material science, you know, engineering, um, computer science, maybe also a no. little bit now that you no. know. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, my computer science skills are uh, embarrassingly weak. Um, that is, that is my, uh, my weakness. I'm, this is actually one of the best things about all of these online courses now. Mm -hmm. Is that you like someone, you know, I hate to use this word, someone who's old like me, um, because computer science was truly like it was a baby field when I was when I was in college. People didn't major in computer science. Like Mathematicians would get like minors in computer science because a lot of computer science departments were considered like subfields of math, which yeah. seems really like strange now. Right. Like computer science are like entire schools of computer science. Right. Uh, but, you know, then it was like a, you know, a subfield of math, you know, you might get like a minor in uh, computer science, but it was really a science, like a true science, it was statistics. Um, right. So I, I never took any classes in CS because I was like, I don't want to be a mathematician. Uh, Makes sense. But yeah, yeah but now, <laughs> now I can take all these uh, like free online classes. So I'm like, I'm learning a little bit of Python in my free time. I'm learning some R. Uh, so it's great. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, you have to stop somewhere. You have to leave some fields for other people as well. You're just no. everywhere. But it's this is a great thing about being an academic or really just being an engineer or a scientist. Right? Like you you can always keep learning something new. Uh, yeah. you know, there's always something new to learn. Uh, you don't you don't just get your, you know, four-year undergrad education and then stop, right? Like there's your undergrad education like teaches you how to learn and how to teach yourself. And mm -hmm. it's really like a, a springboard. Uh, and that, that ability is amazing. Uh, so that's, yeah. So I'm now, I'm now working on uh, trying to fix my really embarrassing lack of computer science. You somehow managed to like hit the one thing that I'm 
most insecure about. So you should not feel embarrassed about it at all. You definitely should not feel embarrassed because you have you have so much knowledge already, and you're already um, acquiring skills with Python and R and all of that while being a professor, while supervising students, while doing all of this. So kudos to you because you have nothing to be embarrassed about. This is like I'm more just afraid that you will turn into this superhuman superhuman sort of a person who knows everything from computer science to life sciences to natural sciences everything which is great um but it's also intimidating um well thank you <laughs> awesome so thank you very much for telling us mm-hmm. about your career journey so uh, your current research um mm-hmm. you already spoke a little bit about that in the in the short podcast um but where does it fit in in this big picture of materials on nanoscience this yeah. very broad field that we have so where does it fit yeah. so i would say materials kind of forms the the starting point or the foundation um so mm-hmm. whenever you think about you know a material if you invent a new material that's really the starting point of an entire pipeline of technology development uh mm-hmm. so in our lab we we take that same mindset Um so if we you know if we talk with you know, physicians or if we talk with uh, engineers in, in the telecom field you know they'll propose a problem you know like they want a faster modulator or they want a better diagnostic or they want a better way of imaging cells um mm-hmm. and so we really think about what that problem is and mm-hmm. then we you know go all the way back to the beginning and we say okay how can we develop a new material that will then enable a better modulator or a better frequency comb or a better imaging agent. And mm-hmm. usually, you know, like you you could take an existing technology and try to like tweak it, but that's really like trying to use a, you know, a screw as a nail. Like mm. you you can do it, but it doesn't really work very well. Mm-hmm. Uh so we'll say okay, if we want a better imaging agent, let's think about how can we design a better uh molecule that can do, you know, higher efficiency two photon imaging. um that you know more biocompatible that smaller that maybe has a, an easier higher efficiency synthesis route um that maybe like self intercalates into the cell membrane um and maybe has really good tunability in terms of its wavelength absorption right so like mm-hmm. we think about like how can we develop a new material that has lots of different properties that the biologists want and then mm-hmm. we we start we start with like uh dft design of the molecular structure so like very very beginning so theory and then we design the synthesis and then we uh you know actually make it then we characterize it and wow. then you know, after all of that then we start moving into like biocompatibility studies with some cell lines and then we actually do imaging studies and etc so that's like an example project but wow that and th- that's like one line of investigation you know a similar line of investigation might be uh you know trying to develop a new material to develop higher efficiency frequency combs um and it would have that same type of process so going back to the drawing board on designing a new material that would have better properties in different ways and then designing that material for a device architecture um you know optimizing in in a optical device it would be for things like the nonlinear refractive index uh the refractive index contrast the compatibility with uh nanofabrication methods so that you could create planar arrays um mm-hmm. and then also the uh the dispersion of the material mm-hmm. so you know taking into account the optical properties as well as 
the actual like manufacturing. So like the, the long-term like things you're going to need to consider. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, after we make the material, then we actually do the fabrication. We do the device characterization. So, uh, so my lab has chemists in it to actually do that material design and chemical engineers to, you know, work with the chemists to do the scale up on the synthesis and material scientists to do that. Then we also have electrical engineers and physicists. Um, and we have biomedical engineers. So we, we kind of span all of that. Um, mm-hmm. So all of those fields. Okay. So it's a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. I almost want to quit uh, my current <laughs> job and move back to science and ask you if you have an op- uh, open position for me to do a postdoc yeah. or something. But no, that, that sounds really, really cool. So it's basically from theory to like from conceptualization to like to application, like the mm-hmm. entire thing. It's not yes. just like a bit of characterization, a bit of fabrication. No, no, no. You do everything. Yeah, it's the whole thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is yeah. that is really, really cool. That is, you are truly a material scientist. I must say. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, so like it depends who I'm talking to. Mm. Um, but some people know me for my integrated photonics work. And mm-hmm. some people know me as a microscopist. Um, some know me as a chemist because it depends like which which yeah. section of work I'm known for. Yeah. Uh, and then it gets really awkward when two different people meet and they they know me for different fields. And that, right. that gets very um, interesting. Yeah, or if I go. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, go or, on. or if like I go, so for example, I went to um, Coach University in Turkey and gave a talk in the chemistry department there mm-hmm. um, on a, a lot of our uh, like optically responsive polymers. So mm-hmm. the entire talk was about like the synthesis of the polymers and how they were UV cleavable and we could use them as like a early warning for skin cancer. Um, mm-hmm. So like to prevent you from getting burned. Um, but then in the audience was an entire group that does similar work for our integrated photonic devices. So mm-hmm. doing like lasers and th- but like completely different field um, mm-hmm. because they, they were trying to build a testing setup and we have like four of them in our lab. Um, so then at the end of my talk, like three of them raised their hands and started asking detailed questions about like how we do waveguide coupling, what type of lasers we have in our lab, like what are our scan speeds? And those questions had nothing to do with the entirety of my previous talk. And so the chemists in the audience were kind of looking at me like, what what are they asking about? Like, how does this have to do with your, you know, ATRP reaction? Like, what does laser speed have to do with polymerization? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I was like, I'm going to pull up a different presentation and we're going to run through the testing setup. Like just one, one second, um, we, we can do this. So it was just, it was, it was great. Right. Like, I'm glad they saw that I was giving this talk in the chemistry department right. and came and felt comfortable coming. Yeah. But the chemists in the audience were just kind of staring at this group of students, like, Okay, why are you why are you asking these questions that have nothing to do with this present talk? And and how do you know the answers to these questions? Aren't you a chemist? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Like, aren't you? Don't you do polymer work? Um, so yes, yeah, so, so that happens. Um, oh, and that's it, it's, really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's great. But it was, and I was, I was also super happy that the students came and felt comfortable enough to do that. 
because uh, yeah. it's it's also how like you know science should progress is that you know people should feel comfortable enough to to ask questions like that um, and say like you know I'm having problems like can you help me troubleshoot my testing setup um, yeah because absolutely. you know I'm happy to help people troubleshoot their testing setup uh, absolutely. <laughs> But a lot of times people, you know, are like, no, no, it's my, it's my thing. I invented, I'm not going to help you. Uh, I will tell you all the parameters, but two. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you everything except like the two important ones. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm glad that, that um, this, this sounds really cool. So you basically speak polymer, you speak uh, chemistry, you speak physics, you speak engineering, you speak electrical engineering, you speak material science, so you can speak all these kinds of different lang languages, and you understand yeah. the terms, because that's the breadth of your knowledge. Um, yeah. It's, but it's, it's also a lot of fun, right? Like you, you have a, you know, science degree, and you're now doing something totally different. And it's, it's fun. It's fun to keep doing to keep switching things. Yeah, and moving around. Absolutely, absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. So the next question to you, Andrea, is that it sounds to me that, I mean, of course, you have like tons of interesting research projects going on, um, mm -hmm. not just right now, but also in the past, you have been involved yep. in a lot of very interesting research projects. This is a tough question. <laughs> if you have to pick one research project that you're most proud of or the most fun or quirky one, could you pick one and explain it to us in simple words in the section mm -hmm. we call in other words? Yeah. Um, so I, you asked me this question before uh, and, and, I, and I, I told you that uh, it depends on the day uh, and it truly <laughs> depends on the day uh, because it, it depends on uh, either like if a student has come into my office and shown me new data that day, then suddenly that's my favorite project Absolutely. because I just saw new data. So that's yeah. my favorite project. Um, and it has nothing to do with, is that actually my favorite project or is that actually the project I'm most proud of? Um, but I guess if I really think back there, I could bin favorite projects in terms of a couple different criteria. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, the first project I'm most, or there's a project I'm most proud of for a reason that has nothing to do with complexity. Um, okay. And that would be the first project I've worked on when I was an undergrad. Okay. And that I'm most proud of it simply because it was like the first research project I ever did. <laughs> right. And so it was like my first step into doing science. Relatable, um, totally relatable. Please yeah. go on. <laughs> yes. Um, and so that project uh, was taking polymers that were actually, there were dye block copolymers, which means you have two different polymers, which you can think of as like string. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so two different colors of yarn, and then you tie them together at one end. So then you basically have two different types of yarn attached to each other. And then mm -hmm. you create a thin film of this. So then you just have like an array of all of these things. And then mm -hmm. depending on the length, the relative length between these two different types of yarn and how thick your film is. Um, so, you know, like you're icing a cake, right? How thick your icing is. Um, mm -hmm. That determines what type of patterns you get. Um, mm -hmm. And I was super lucky. My uh, mentor, a person named Ward Lopes, was he gave me a lot of freedom. Um, possibly more freedom than he should have. Uh, but he let me like take images of my samples on a TEM, on a transmission electron <sighs> microscope, 
Of keep what? in mind this was in like the 90s yeah so tems were very i mean they're always very expensive but they were very very expensive um so i got to make my samples i got to use a spinner i i got to actually like cleave wafers and do like sil- super silicon night like super thin silicon nitride films oh, i got wow. to measure them using an oximeter i got to use a tem um this was also in the time when you had to this was before like good camera. So I had to like manually develop my own film. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Right. So, like, it, yeah. Cause I'm old. Um, so it was, <laughs> it was an incredible time. Um, so that's like, and the project like worked. Um, it did result in the publication. I wasn't on it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was, it was an incredible learning opportunity for me. Cause I learned mm-hmm. about so much different stuff. Um, mm-hmm. so that's, that was like one of my favorite projects simply because of the learning that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so another one of my favorite projects, uh, was probably the, maybe the second or third project I did in grad school, um, mm-hmm. simply because it was a collaboration with my husband, <laughs> you know, and like, that's right. Like, it's always nice when you do projects that are collaborations. Um, mm-hmm. and it started off as a dare um, so he and I were in different research it. groups. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so he and I were in different research groups. And mm-hmm. I was in a group making microfluidic channels out of PDMS, which is a plastic, it's a squishy plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you make it, you make these microfluidic channels by first having like a master structure. So kind of like if you're making a car part or something like that, you have like an initial starting the structure. Mold. Mm-hmm. a mold, right? And then you pour this plastic on top of it, you make the plastic solid, and then you peel it off. And now you have like the inverse structure. And that's how you yeah. make a lot of microfluidic channels. And yeah. he had just made this like, super fancy optical device called a resonator, and it looks kind of like a mushroom. Um, so it's like elevated off of the, the substrate. Um, it has a lot of like three dimensional features to it. But it's, it's super small. So it's about the width of a human hair. Right. So it's super tiny. Mm-hmm. So it, and it's also made out of multiple material systems. So part of it was glass. Part of it was silicon, oh, which wow. means there's some. Yeah, there's some material challenges in trying to make a mold of it because part of it's hydrophilic, part of it's hydrophobic. So like a surface chemistry to keep it from from the polymer from sticking to that is kind of hard. Mm. So he bet me I wouldn't be able to do it. Right. Fair. <laughs> Challenge bet. accepted. Challenge okay. accepted. Um, so I was like, I got this. Uh, so my first try, I got one. I mean, it was an array of 12, but I got one to work. I was so proud of myself because I had to first make the negative mold and then I had to backfill my mold and get the positive mold. And I got one to work. I was so proud of myself because I won the bet. Of course. Then right, we wanted to characterize my version of his initial structure to see if it actually was also a resonator. Mm-hmm. It took me six months to replicate it. Yeah, that doesn't count. Uh, first one, right. worked. that's what counts. Yes, first one works. <laughs> that's when that's when that can't that counts on me winning the bet. Mm-hmm. But the reason why it took me and this is a learning experience, the reason why it took me six months to replicate is because the surface chemistry that I used the first time was something called trichloromethylsilane. And I just, so TCMS. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to reorder the bottle, the manufacturer, even though it was the same part number, they changed it to be TMCS. So trimethyl 
chlorosilane. Oh. So instead of having three chlorines, it had three methane or three methyls. And mm-hmm. so it had a totally different surface chemistry. Mm-hmm. And it took me six months to figure out that the vendor changed basically, something. Yeah, changed something. And then my surface chemistry no longer worked. And that's why I was no longer able to replicate it. How mad so, are you? I was, I was incredibly upset, yeah. <laughs> um, but I figured it out um, mm-hmm. in the end. And so mm-hmm. I use this for my PhD students as a, as a teaching lesson on why it's so important to write down everything you do, um, not just part numbers, but part numbers and names and purities and concentrations and, and yeah. don't trust vendors because vendors will change things and not tell you. Um, so it's, it's your science, which yeah, is basically yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, at the end of the day, like, right, it's your science and your responsibility. Um, right. so at the end of the day, it was my fault for not checking and just assuming. Oh. Um, but yeah, so those, and I really, those are like very long ago. Um, mm-hmm. but then like, we just had a manuscript accepted yesterday in a journal. Oh. So right now that's my favorite project. Congratulations. Which isn't fair. that's not fair to like all the other work going on in the group so it's the most recent celebration yeah it's the most recent celebration uh exactly yeah (laughs) uh that is really really cool really really um cool projects and i actually love the part that you went all the way back in the first project and then but I, i i love it all that is so cool so Andrea, it's very, very evident to me that you really like the research aspect of being a scientist, doing the probably, I don't know how much time you get now to go take the pictures, <laughs> uh, go to the lab, go to the red bench. I don't know about that, but you really enjoy that. But other mm-hmm. than that, what else do you like about being a scientist or being a professor? In your mm-hmm. um, so I actually, when I first started grad school, I went to grad school planning on going to a national lab. Um, and then I TA'd and I TA'd actually my first and second year in grad school. So my first year I TA'd a grad lab course and my second year I TA'd, uh, the grad version of uh, nonlinear and non-equilibrium thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, so one was more of like a classroom and one was a lab class. And I really enjoyed TA, um, mm-hmm. which I fully acknowledge is not something most people say, uh, but I really enjoyed it. And that kind of changed my decision on, you know, do I want to be a professor or do I want to be a full-time researcher? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's my way of saying that the part I enjoy actually most about being a professor is getting to work with students, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, seeing students grow, uh, both undergrad students, um, high school students, as well as my PhD students and my postdoc, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. actually seeing them you know, come into my lab, you know, if they're undergrads, you know, come into my lab, perhaps never having been in a lab before, you know, not understanding how to develop controls for their experiment, you know, perhaps never having used a microscope before. And then when they leave, they're fully functioning researchers, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they've developed a confidence, you know, they, you know, they aren't afraid to, you know, say, okay, well, you know, I know how to use the UV vis, the fluorimeters, kind of the same thing you know I can probably figure out how to use the fluorimeter um, you know they they have that that mindset um, mm-hmm. and the same thing with the PhD students you know they they come in you know they're they're basically undergrads um, 
you know, they're three months after getting their bachelor's degree. It's not like they're suddenly grad students on day one of their PhD program. They're babies. Um, (laughs) Yeah, they're babies, right? Um, You know, but just seeing how much they grow over the course of their PhD, you know, to the last year of their PhD, I I expect all of my PhD students to propose one project that is completely independent, you know, not a project I'm giving them, but one that they conceptualize and they, you know, it's their idea and they actually execute it all the way to the end. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's super important to have that independence of thought. And that mm-hmm. they aren't relying on me for every idea in every direction. Because, you know, after you have a PhD, you're going to go out in the world and you're going to be the leader, right? People are going to look to you to give them guidance. Yeah. Um, you know, so while Absolutely. you're in my group, I want you to, you know, practice that because um, I'm still here as like a safety net. Right. Um, so you get one, <laughs> one chance. <laughs> That is so cool. I mean, I'm so happy that we have professors like you who who like teaching, who like to mentor students, who like to give this freedom to the students, PhD students. I really like this idea of at the end of their PhD, conceptualize one independent project. You probably don't have to do it, but conceptualize it because that is very similar to what you one would have to do after they graduate. That's that's what is expected. Uh, exactly what you said. That's what the world expects from you when you have the PhD at the end of your name or doctor in front of your name, however the mm-hmm. system works in different parts of yeah. the world, yeah. that uh, people are going to be like, okay, now you do it. And then you should be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's it's really hard to, you know, sit in front of a computer and be like, okay, I'm going to come up with something new. And it can be very intimidating the first time. Uh, yeah. So I think it's really important to do it once um, and to really think through like, okay, I'm coming up with something new. Um, you know, like, what am I going to need to do that? You know, like what you know, practice experiments am I going to need to do that? What are my controls going to be? Um, what mm-hmm. resources am I going to need? Um, right. And to actually go through that exercise. Yeah, absolutely. That is very, very cool. So, I mean, you did, we did speak a bit about the advices and you're compiling already the different kinds <laughs> of life hacks or advices, however we call mm-hmm. them. So what advice would you give uh, either to yourself if you were mm-hmm. starting out today or if for, for students who are starting out today, what mm-hmm. advice would you give them? I mean, I know there's going to be tons of advice. Coming. Shows. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so have at yeah. it, please. Um, so one of my uh, former PhD students, I found this out like, after she graduated, she actually had an entire like notebook, lab notebook of like advice I've gotten from Professor Armani. And <laughs> like, like that was the entire notebook. Um, I love and, it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, okay. Um, so I would say I have kind of a couple pieces of advice I like give all you know students. Um, and the first is to not get frustrated uh, because it's very easy because the majority of my research is experimental, it's very easy to get frustrated, um, especially when things are failing in the mm-hmm. lab and, you know, experimental research, the majority of the time things are failing. Uh, and it's also very easy to internalize failure. Um, you know, so if you have an experiment and the experiment fails, it's very easy to internalize that as, you know, I am failing as opposed to the experiment is failing. And those mm-hmm. are two very different things. Right. Because experiments fail and it has nothing to do with like you as a human being being a failure. Um, yeah. You expect experiments to fail like that. That's just that's life. Um, so it's really important to separate those two. 
and to make sure that, that you don't internalize that. Um, so that's one very common piece of advice I give a lot of students, especially in their like second and third years, because that's usually when students are really hitting that, that wall, because um, they're wow. facing a lot of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And then another piece of advice I give students is, you know, to, to not let the negative news just overwhelm the positive news, because it's very easy to let the negative news kind of take over your psyche and then kind of blow off the positive news. Um, so right. it's really important to celebrate everything positive and kind of allow the positive news to take a really good firm root in your brain and your emotions. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. The, and like negative news can be any negative news, right? It could be like, okay. you know, a bad grade. It could be, you know, somebody saying something kind of snotty to you yeah Yeah, right like it could be like neg like just negativity and you tend yeah in general right and whenever somebody says something negative to you even if someone says something positive that negative comment you tend to allow it to just balloon in the positive comment people tend not to allow that to balloon to the same amount yeah so it's actually a very good point. You're absolutely right. We do do that as humans, I feel like, or a lot of humans, or maybe it's just me or your students who are doing this. <laughs> no, no it, um, it's a gent, like, it, there have actually been studies that, like, a negative comment has five times the impact of a positive comment. Oh, yeah, really? So, yes. So oh, like, my God. Yes, yeah, so like, you really need to focus on the positives. On making sh- yeah, on making sure that the positives in your life, you you give them focus, because the right. negative comments are, they, they're going to take your focus, even if you don't want them to. True. Um, so you really need to give the positives your attention. Right. That's, that's those two are really, really great pieces of advice, not getting frustrated and letting not letting the negativity take over the positivity. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, very important. Um, really looking forward to all your advice that's coming <laughs> our way when you're taking over the account, honestly, because I'm loving this conversation. Um, uh, well, Andrea, I hope you're, it sounds to me that uh, your research experience so far has been wonderful, and I hope it will continue to be wonderful in the future as well. Um, however, if you had three wishes to improve your research experience, what would you ask for? And I'm not promising anything here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think one of my three wishes is the same wish every faculty member would wish for. And what that could that be? be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would just be more funding. Um, yes. So uh, I'm pretty sure every every faculty member would uh, get behind me on that. Yeah. Um, so probably my second wish um, would be a more transparency in protocols. Um, and that would actually be kind of, that would be both for faculty, but that would also be on behalf of all the students out there. Uh, I remember when I was a student, like really struggling with just reproducing things where, as, as we talked about earlier, there was like one missing step. Um, and that would be yeah. just really helpful and especially I look around now like there are like YouTube wasn't like sharing protocols on YouTube wasn't as big of a thing when I was in grad school Mm -hmm. and that is that could be such a resource Um, instead of having written protocols having like video protocols and I realize there are some journals like 
Jove that offers visual protocols, but it's mm -hmm. also super expensive mm -hmm. and YouTube's free. So, you know, we don't need like super fancy video protocols, you know, like a, a cell phone and a student in a lab that's more than sufficient. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, I think the third is, you know, kind of reimagining this whole conference thing. Um, so two years ago, I ran, so pre-COVID, I ran a virtual conference, but it was like a distributed network virtual conference. In other words, there were hubs. So it was almost like a, like a local or regional in-person conference, but then all the hubs were connected. Uh, so then it had kind of a combination of hybrid because there were, you know, virtual talks, but then also the in-person component. And a lot of the hubs had in-person poster sessions, but then the virtual part, you know, all the speakers could, you, know, you could ask questions of all the speakers. So there was still that interactive global aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think that is super important, keeping the virtual conferences, because it really does enable a lot of students to attend conferences. Um, it allows researchers from a lot of different countries to attend conferences, especially as things like visas are getting harder. Yes. And conference attendance is getting so much more expensive. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I think yeah. about especially my undergrads who over the last like year and a half have been able to attend, you know, like maybe three talks at a conference, mm -hmm. right? Like even if I could afford to send them all to a conference, they wouldn't want to go because they have classes, right? They can't actually go anyway. But now they right. can, you know, see like three talks. And that's really useful for them. So keeping right. that as a possibility, I think is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all three wishes, very, very important. Funding, oh, big yes. Protocols, video protocols, yes. We need, and please, please write all the all the steps. It's very, very important. <laughs> I mean, show all the steps or talk about all the steps, however you are doing it um, yeah. as a researcher, because that is, your work should be reproducible by another lab without having to yeah. bother you, bombard you with questions. <laughs> and it shouldn't yeah. be a guess them like a treasure hunt, like, oh, what could this step be? What could these parameters yeah. be? Um, yeah. And also the hybrid conferences. I think that's very, very important. Um, this has been amazing, Andrea, but before I let you go, one last mm -hmm. question. Um, mm -hmm. I cannot let you go without asking about your learnings from the pandemic that we are living through, <laughs> whatever you can mm -hmm. share. Okay. Um, so I would say I've, I've had several different things I've learned. Uh, so one of them was really, because the last time I ran the virtual conference, it was like pre-pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. And so I ran it really... Uh, just to try to enable communities to come together. And so when we did it, so it was me and uh, several colleagues actually from lots of different countries around the world. Uh, and we didn't anticipate it being as uh, prescient as it ended up being. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so just seeing how important actually having virtual conferences ended up being, uh, mm -hmm. that, that was one thing I learned. Uh, another thing I learned was that, you know, travel is important. But, you know, it doesn't have to play as big of a role as it does. So the year before the pandemic started, I think I flew like 100,000 miles um, traveling. Yeah. And then in 2020, I was scheduled to fly, like based on my travel schedule, I was scheduled to fly something like 130,000 miles. Um, oh. And then all that got canceled, obviously. 
And I was so happy, actually, that it all got canceled because I was really dreading it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think now in the future, like travel schedules like that just aren't going to happen uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of that travel was travel to like Washington, D.C. to serve on panel review committees for various things. And a lot of those agencies are now revisiting those decisions to have all of the committees in person. Right. And that's going to make a huge change in I mean, my quality of life, but other people's quality of life, right? Mm Because it is super stressful to, for example, like take a red eye Tuesday night, be in DC for a day and then fly back at 10 p.m. on Tuesday night or Wednesday night. It's just, it's, it's stressful. It's very like physically stressful on your body to do Mm -hmm. that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would just spend a lot of time sick, uh, just ill because I was on plane so much and it didn't matter like how much I tried to you know stay healthy mm-hmm. yeah I was just sick all the time um so I think that's that is like one of the big lessons I've learned is that you know travel is important but being more picky about the travel I do um that's going to make a big difference in my life right right I hope it continues that way that uh, it's also good for the environment Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good exactly. for people, it's good for environment, it's good for everyone. We just need to find yeah. a balance. I mean, no, don't mm-hmm. scrap uh, in-person meetings or conferences or panels right. completely, but pick and choose. You can't. Yeah, pick and pick and choose. And then a lot of the travel people did just, it wasn't really needed, right? Like it wasn't. And then maybe, you know, instead of doing as, as many conferences as we've been doing, maybe do fewer conferences. Like we don't need to have as many, like it got to the point that, there were there were conferences like every single month. Like, do we really yeah. need that many? Like, come on, probably not. <laughs> uh, you know, and and then we can also do a better job of uh, of organizing and like coalescing different events. Um, so yeah. Quality over quantity. That is very, very yeah. important. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been wonderful. Very, very much looking forward to your time on Real Scientist Nano. I had a lot thank of you. fun learning about you, meeting you, learning about you as a person, as a scientist, as a professor. And I'm really excited about your time on Real Scientist Nano. So thank you very Great. much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To know more about us, please visit our website, realscientistsnano.org and follow us on Twitter at realsci underscore nano.